The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. First Corinthians chapter 11, if you've been coming around for a little while, uh, you know that our regular rhythm as a church is to work through uh, what we call a sermon series, collections of sermons based around a book of the Bible or a theme, and we kind of like to work through them a little bit at a time to try to make a larger argument or to see the larger picture of what Scripture's doing, but occasionally in the calendar we have these kind of set aside uh, what we call standalone sermons to just address something In the life of our church, we think the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us as a people through his word. So today we're going to do one of that, one of those, and we're going to very simply, it won't take a lot of time, talk about the practice of communion. Or depending on your church tradition or background, you might have heard it referred to as the table or the Lord's Supper or even the Eucharist, which is just the Greek word for Thanksgiving. The communion is a practice We do every Sunday, we gather as a church, as a part of how we respond to the Word of God. And so what I want to do today, just for a few minutes, from 1 Corinthians 11, is to teach on this practice to help give you sort of renewed excitement and energy and zeal to come to the table every single Sunday with all that it represents and all that we get to celebrate in the bread and the cup. Very simple. That's where we're headed. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get right to work. Lord, thank you so much for the chance once again on a 
ordinary and yet sacred day to get to open up your word, to get to worship with your people. Lord, we don't come to earn anything, to prove anything, to pay penance for anything, or we come as recipients of your grace, your kindness to us through the cross of Christ. Lord, as we just sang about, our only hope, our only plea, both in life and in death, is the blood of your Son. So Lord, we open up our hearts to whatever you want to speak to us today. Lord, as we think about communion, this practice that you have given to your people through the centuries, Lord, I pray that you would do what you can do. Take your word by the power of your spirit. Get it into our hearts such that we are changed. We love you. We need you. Probably sing Christ's name. All God's people said, amen. Communion. Let's just start here. So communion is one of two acts given by Jesus to his church, the other being baptism. Now you may have heard communion and baptism referred to before as either ordinances or sacraments. And I think both of those terms are good because I think both of those terms accurately say something about the practice. Communion is both. It's both an ordinance and a sacrament. So communion is a sacrament, and that's just the, the fancy word for a means of grace. When we come up every Sunday and we take communion, we're not doing so simply as a memorial to something that happened in the past. We're also not coming in order to eat the literal body and blood of Jesus. Those are two different church positions, but rather it's something in the middle where Christ meets us, in the words of John Calvin, in grace to spiritually nourish and sustain his people. So it's a sacrament. It's a means of receiving grace. Communion is also, though, an ordinance, which is just a fancy way of saying it was ordained or instituted by Christ. We see this in Matthew 26, right? The very first Lord's Supper. On Thursday night of Holy Week, Jesus is eating with his disciples. It's the night before he's handed, or the night he's handed over, before he's crucified. And he gets up during this meal, he washes their feet. This shocking act of self-sacrifice and self-denial. And then we read this in Matthew 26, 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Starting with that night, tracking on throughout church history, communion takes a place in the life of the church. So Acts chapter 2, the first picture we get of the first gathering of Christians. This is what we read in Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the what? Breaking of bread and the prayers. Later on, just a couple of years and chapters later, Acts chapter 20, we read this. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to what? Break bread. The act of breaking bread or communion becomes this weekly practice for the early Christians. When the first century followers of Jesus gathered together for worship, they took communion. They took of the bread and the cup. It was formative and meaningful and ongoing part of their worship gatherings. You can keep tracking on from the book of Acts. Communion takes this prominent place in the life of the church's Worship. It's a sacrament, an ordinance from the institution of Jesus at the Last Supper 
onward into history and even today holds a prominent place in the life of the church. But it's also a sacrament and ordinance that also, from the beginning, has been practiced in some troublesome, unholy, and improper ways as well. And that's where we come to our passage today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start in verse 17. Paul writes, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. All right, so a little bit of context. This passage today comes at the beginning of a larger section from Paul of instructions to the church in the city of Corinth about their gathered worship. That's what he means when he says, when you come together. He's talking about their first century version of what we are doing right now. And if you were to read the rest of the letter of 1 Corinthians, you would know this church in Corinth is a church gone wild. All right, all sorts of sin and problems and conflict. And apparently their Sunday worship, according to Paul, is not all that different than life in the church during the rest of the week. And so Paul starts by saying, when you come together, it's doing more harm than good. It is not good when you come together. And he'll go on in the next couple of chapters to address what's going wrong in their Sunday gatherings when they get together for worship. You're going to see that instead of one person getting up to give a teaching, a bunch of people are all fighting for the mic, yelling over each other, trying to get their message to the church across. Some people are mocking others because they think their spiritual gift is more important than the other person's spiritual gifts. They're like, you got mercy? That's lame. I got prophecy. Ha ha. Like that, that's a weird thing to make fun of each other for. You've got folks speaking in tongues without an interpreter, which we know who you are. We'll deal with that next Sunday. Oh, wow, it's not going today. Okay, they have a whole host of issues. And one of those issues that he starts by addressing is the way they are taking communion. Verse 18, we'll get through it together. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. So he says, okay, when you come together for worship, there's some divisions. And I'm not totally upset about that. There needs to be some amount of division because some of you are Christians and some of you are not. And so I'm okay with that division happening. But this is the division that he's not okay with. Keep going in verse 20. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper. It's not communion that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, just so you understand what's happening here, back in these days, communion was practiced as an entire meal. People would sit around a table, and they would feast, and they would enjoy good food and good wine. And then the central part of this larger meal was what we do today, the bread and the cup. And there's a ton of reasons why it has changed from a full meal to just this act we do today, more than we have time to get into this morning. But what's happening in Corinth is that when the church is getting together to break bread, some folks apparently have nothing to eat, while others are just getting absolutely blitzed on the communion wine and stuffing their faces full of food. And Paul says, this is not right. You're going to clap for you? You're going to commend you in this? I will not commend you. In fact, you can't even call this the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper because of how you're treating the act towards the table. It's meant to be for the church in Corinth and for us a sacred act of unity and remembrance for the people of God. And he says you're taking it in an unholy, improper way. Now, as far as I know, this is not our specific problem today here at Citizens, right? 
Like, I have not heard any pastoral care cases of someone getting drunk from communion. If it did, I would have so many questions. Primarily, it's grape juice. So that's weird. It's just not our problem, right? But it doesn't mean that we as a church are exempt from a warning from Paul that we, in the words of verse 27, would eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner. Now, the specifics might be different, right? We're not, like, rushing to the table, leaving people behind, like, more great for me, like, that's not what we're doing, but we can still take it in an unworthy manner. And I think for us, the corrective that I want to spend our time in this morning, 1 Corinthians 11, regarding communion, would not be drunkenness, but rather indifference. We would approach the table not ready to get hammered on communion wine or grape juice or whatever, but that we would approach the table in kind of a laissez-faire, whatever, let's just go through the motions and get back to worship. This is just kind of that thing I do because, oh, it's my turn in line. I'm just kind of going to go up to the front now, take it, go back, and kind of dip it, make sure I don't get my fingers in it because that's gross. And it'll be too big of a piece because then it's hard to chew and it's kind of dry. We just get through it real fast and then we'll be done. Difference. Laissez-faire, just kind of going through the religious motions. And the reason why I'm concerned about this for us as a church is because of what we do, which is take communion every single week. It's part of our practice here as a church, and I love that we do it that way. It's the plan for the foreseeable future. The big reason why, get this question all the time in membership, the big reason why we take communion every single week is that we believe in what philosopher James K.A. Smith calls the power of repetition. He argues in his fantastic book, Desiring the Kingdom, that the power in Christian liturgy, it's the word for what we do on Sundays when we sing, we do readings and silence and teaching, communion, benediction, that's our liturgy. He says the power in that is not that we make it continuously novel and new, but that it is the same old, same old. This is what he writes. I love this. It's so helpful. He says one of the most crucial things to appreciate about Christian formation is that it happens over time. If you've been coming around for a while, that statement should not be a surprise to you. One of the things we constantly push is patience. Patience. Christ is doing something over the long haul. There must be a rhythm and regularity to formative practices in order for them to sink in, in order for them to seep into our cardia, our, our heart, our core of our being, and begin to be effectively inscribed in who we are, directing our passion to the kingdom of God, and thus disposing us to action that reflects such a desire. Here's the key. Liturgies, repetition in what we do when we gather, Aim our love to different ends precisely by training our hearts through our bodies. That's why when we gather together, we say all of the time, you are not just here as a floating brain or even a floating heart. You're here as an embodied human. So what you do with your body in this space matters. When you walk with your feet and legs to the communion table and you take it and you put it in your mouth and you eat of the bread and you drink of the cup, when you close your eyes or lift your hands or look around in worship, when you sit, when you stand, when you kneel, all of that is forming you because you're not separated soul and body. We are one embodied being. And what we do with our bodies matter. And the repetitious nature of our liturgies, getting into our bodies, changes our hearts towards the kingdom of God. You tracking? And there's power in that. And so what he continues to argue in the book, if you keep reading it, because I know you're all going to go by and keep reading it, is that he talks about how you have to go through the motion where first it's wonderful and meaningful because it's new. And then it gets to that place where it's kind of old, and then past that, it gets to a new freshness again, in the same old, same old. 
how it comes back around again to meaningfulness in our lives. But the struggle or the danger is that weekly communion would not be that formative, repetitious practice, but rather doing it every week would lull us into a difference. Because we as a culture hate repetition, do we not? Like we love novelty and new. New iPhone, new job, new city, new career, new home, new car. Like we like new. We think the fun is in the new. I gotta go to a new place and do a new thing with new people all of the time. And so we're not ingrained in our culture to like same old, same old. And so because of that, we might reject same old, same old, and then same old, same old becomes indifference. So here's what I want to do, because here's what I think Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11. He's going to look at the problem with how the Corinthians are approaching communion. You're moving on ahead of each other. You're not loving one another. You're doing it wrong. And he says, okay, I want to acknowledge the danger, and then I want to direct you back to a holy practice of communion through lifting up what it actually means. He says, I want to re-engage your heart to the beauty of this meal so that you take it in a proper way. And that's what I want to do for us as well. I want to do that very simply through what we'll call the four directions of communion. The four directions of communion. We'll hit them quick. Number one, I just want to lift our eyes to what communion actually means such that we approach the table differently. Number one, first direction of communion is backwards. First direction of communion is that it points us as a people backwards into history. Chances are this is the one you're most familiar with. Look with me. First Corinthians 11, verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in, notice that, remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, what? In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper, he told his disciples that part of this act would be, quote, in remembrance of him. While the disciples wouldn't have fully understood it at the time, because this is pre-crucifixion, pre-cross, what Jesus was alluding to would soon become very evident, and that is this. In the symbolism of the bread, Jesus was talking about his own body, which would be beaten and torn on the cross for them and for us. In the symbolism of the cup, Jesus was talking about his own blood, which would be shed on the cross for them and for us. Us And so when we eat of the bread, we drink of the cup, we come to the table of communion. Jesus wants us to remember that moment in history when he went to the cross. He gave up his body and his blood to pay the penalty for sin and sinners to freely come to him. But we remember not just the death itself, specifically what the death accomplished for us. Because when Jesus gets up on that night of the Last Supper, he does not get up to start a new tradition as much as he does to reframe and reimagine an old, old, old tradition. Matthew, in his gospel, goes to great lengths to make sure we know this is the Passover meal. When Jesus gets up and he's sharing this meal with his disciples where he washes their feet and they take up the bread and the cup, he's celebrating that in a long tradition for the Jewish people of celebrating and commemorating the Passover. So if you don't remember, it's okay, Passover takes place in the book of Exodus, and it's corresponding to the tenth plague of ten that Jesus brings, or God brings upon the Egyptians, because they will not let the Israelites go free from slavery. 
And in the 10th plague, he says, I'm bringing judgment upon this land, and you will be spared from the judgment. The angel of the Lord will pass over you if you kill a spotless sacrificial lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost of your house. Then the angel will pass over, and God's judgment will not come to your house. So the Jewish people celebrated this passing over through the Passover meal for centuries and generations. And here, Jesus, in the Last Supper, gets up during this meal. And it would not have been uncommon for the head of the house to get up and say, hey, let's take the bread, let's take the wine, let's remember the sacrificial lamb on that night of Passover. But Jesus gets up and he goes, hey, this this bread and this cup from here on throughout history will no longer point backwards, but now point forwards. Because here's the reality of the Old Testament. If you're like, the Old Testament is confusing. How do I read it? It's a lot of weird stories about people killing lambs and putting the blood on the doorposts. Here's the number one key of reading the Old Testament. It all points to Jesus. All of it. Jesus in Luke 24, 24, he's walking on the Emmaus road with these two men. And it says that he showed them from the scriptures everything that points to him. Everything in the Old Testament points to, alludes to, promises, a true Messiah is coming, and then Jesus arrives as the fulfillment of those promises. One pastor calls it the Old Testament is promises made, and the New Testament is promises kept. I love that. Jesus gets up up and he goes, hey, you know this feast you've been taking looking backwards? You're going to continue to do that, but you're not going to look backwards to a Passover lamb on a blood on a doorpost. You're going to look backwards to the real, true Passover lamb. The spotless and sacrificial lamb of God, whose blood will not be on doorposts, but on the cross. That's what we're doing every time when we come to take communion. Every time we come together and we come to the table and we take of the bread and we take of the, the wine, we are saying and celebrating that the wrath of God has passed over me. Because it's landed on the sacrificial. That's what happened in Egypt. That's what happens when we put our faith in Christ. And so we celebrate, we remember, we look backward to the cross, and we proclaim together. It's an act of proclamation. You take the bread, you take the juice, you're proclaiming, Jesus died for my sins. I'm no longer under the wrath of God. Number two. It's number one, number two. It also points us forward. First, it points us backward. Second, it points us forward. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink the cup, you what? Proclaim the Lord's death, notice this, until he comes. Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying, when he he takes what's going on in communion, he says, you're going to do this act as a proclamation of the death of Jesus for sin and sinners, when? Until he comes. There's an expiration date to the practice of communion. There's a time in the future where we will no longer practice communion because we will reach the fulfillment of what communion points forward to. Because we as Christians believe that one day Christ is going to return, he's going to make all things new, right all the wrongs, set the world back to God's original design. And the Bible talks about that day all over the place in Revelation, but one of the constant pictures that it gives us of the future return of Christ and the consummation of the new heavens and new earth is a feast. It's a meal. It's a marriage reception of food and wine. This is how Isaiah prophesies about it in Isaiah 25. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. That's Isaiah alluding to the reality of sin. 
that sin that just presses on us, hovers over us, makes our lives and our world break down and decay. That's going to be swallowed up in the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. That'll get you fired up. Isaiah's like, there's coming a day where the burden and pressure of sin and death that's like a blanket and veil over all the earth will be lifted, and that day will be celebrated with a feast. Wine and food like you could never imagine. And so here's why this matters for us, is because we step into every gathering on Sunday with lights going off in the background, right? We don't step in here as just nomadic people, kind of like, we pop in here and then we go away, like, what's that show, Severance or whatever it's called? Or it's like, this is the only life you have, right? It's not a bad show. I've never seen it. I just know. I don't know. Sorry. Um, sweet. Cool. Thank you. Um, there's life going on, right? Like, you've lived six days of good, sure, but also of suffering, of pain, of heartache. You've had conversations with your coworkers where your boss would yell at you for no reason. Or you've had frustrating conversations with your spouse. Or your kids have been crazy. Or your job's just not living up to what you hoped it would be. Or your roommates are terrible. Or fill in the blanks or whatever kind of suffering. A medical diagnosis. Etc. 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 And part of the gift of doing this every week is we get to have a set reminder on the counter we can't ignore that one day Jesus is going to make all things new. And so when we come to the table, we don't just look back and go, look how he saved me. We also look forward to go, look how he's going to save the world. Look what he's going to make it new. He's going to make it all right again. So the table points us backwards. Look at what he's done for me on the cross. It points us forward. Look at what he will do when he makes this all right. But third, it also points us inward. It points us inward. Keep going, verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. All right, real quick, this verse is going to wreck us because we think body and soul are separate. Constantly, the scriptures are pushing them back together that the spiritual affects the body. And so, Paul says, because you're taking this spiritually improperly, it's actually causing some of you to be sick and die. This is the category Jesus has too, right? The religious leaders come to him, they're like, This guy's blind. Whose sin was it? His or his parents? And Jesus isn't like, That's ridiculous that you would think sin would cause blindness. What does he say? No, this is so that the power of God may be put on display. But Jesus has a category that Paul has for spiritual and physical interacting. What does it mean? It means some who take the communion table inappropriately, improperly, become weak and ill, and some have died. That's what I've got, verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Talk about this all throughout Revelation. Disciplined by the Lord because he loves us, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. For participating in communion, Paul invites us to turn inward to self-examination. He wants us to look on our hearts. Now in context here, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's calling out wealthy members of the Corinthian church who are going ahead and eating without considering or waiting for the poor members who don't have food. Which in Paul's mind is a sin against those poor members of the church and therefore against God himself. So when Paul says, hey, everyone ought to examine themselves before eating, here's what he is saying. Prayerfully, humbly, repentantly with the Holy Spirit, consider. 
before coming to the table, whether or not your life is reflecting the meaning of the meal. Let me say that again, just to make sure we got it. Before we approach the table, prayerfully, humbly, repentantly with the Holy Spirit, reflect on whether or not your lives reflect the meaning of the meal. Let me just show you what this looks like. This meal, we just talked about it, is about Jesus redeeming me out of my sin. And so when I'm self-examining before I come to the table, I'm first just starting with, do I believe that he has? Like, do I actually believe that Jesus has died for my sins? Have I put my faith and my trust in him to receive that forgiveness and life forever with God? Even more simply, am I a Christian? Like, before I come to the table, am I even a follower of Jesus? And if I'm not, if I've not put my faith and trust in him, if I'm not a Christian, then by definition, I am taking the table improperly. Because you'd be examining yourself, seeing how you have not yet surrendered to Christ as Savior and Lord, and then saying, eh, no big deal. I'm going to take the communion anyway. Paul says you do that to your own detriment, opening yourself up to the judgment of Christ and eating and drinking judgment on yourself. This is why every single week when we intro communion as one of the ways we respond, we insist every Sunday this is a meal for Christians. Not because we want you to feel weird, or you can't participate if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but because you'd be saying, this is true, when you know it's not for you. You'd be saying, Christ has died for me, when you know you don't believe that yet. And so every Sunday we say, don't take communion, take Christ. Doing that to warn you, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. But then, if you are a follower of Jesus, we keep examining all right, this meal is about how God's hatred of sin was so intense that he gave his only son to rescue us out of it. Does my life also reflect that posture of sin? Am I actively confessing and repenting, working to fight against sin in my life, to get out from under temptation? Am I striving for holiness in my everyday life with God? All right, this meal is about the future return of Christ when he makes all things new. Does my life reflect a hope in that? A deep-seated hope in the future reality that Christ will come again? Before coming to the table to eat, Paul wants us to examine our lives in light of the meal we're eating. Not perfection, right? You don't walk to the table sinless, you walk to the table repentant because of the inviting mercy of God. Alright, I'm not checking up yet. Good. Confessing, no, you're coming repentant. I'm trusting in the mercy of Jesus and I'm asking him to shape and align my desires for the kingdom. So look backward to the cross, forward to the feast, inward, and lastly, number four, outward. Hour is where we'll wrap up. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. I love how the NIV translates this. It says, when you come together to eat, you should all eat together. You come together. This is an act of community. Part of the problem of what the Corinthians are doing is they're taking what is meant to be a communal meal, a feast shared among the people of God, and they're making it about themselves. It's become a personalized practice, not a communal sacrament, because it was designed to be. They're privatizing what was meant to be communal. And this, I would argue, is a danger for all of the Christian life. That individualism that runs rampant in our society would destroy all of the communal realities of our faith, right? You know, this life of God was meant to be lived with his people. That's how life is meant to be lived. Not just you and God, but you and God and his people. The individualistic nature of our secular society would drive you against that. And that's especially dangerous when it comes to the sacrament of communion. This was a practice given by Jesus to his church. 
to his people to do together when they gathered for worship. You should all eat together, Paul says. And just, if it's helpful, this is why, we've got this question before, this is why we don't take communion in community groups. This is why part of our weekly community group rhythm is not to take communion. We've actively said, do not take communion, because we believe it's a practice meant for the church. This is why if one of our pastors officiates your wedding, they won't let you do communion in your ceremony. Because this is a practice given by God for the church. Communion, baptism, meant for the people of God when they gather together. That was God's design for communion. Not only to remember and reflect on the individual implications, but the communal implications. That God doesn't just save us to himself. He saves us into a family. So communion turns us outward. And how? Let me just give you two ways I think this would work. First, it leads us to examine our interpersonal relationships. So we don't just examine our own hearts for sin. We also ask the Lord in prayer, do I have any unresolved conflict, bitterness, lack of forgiveness in my life towards someone else? Have I sinned against someone? Has someone sinned against me? And is it currently unresolved? Jesus, right, in Matthew 5, he says, if you come to the altar to give your gift and realize that you've sinned against someone or someone has sinned against you, back away from the table, go reconcile, and then come offer your gift. I think that is true for communion as well. And so listen to me here. There are some weeks where it might actually be inappropriate for you to take communion that way. Like you might, in time of response, go, all right, let me just pause, let me reflect, let me think about my interpersonal relationships. And you realize, I have conflict with someone that is unresolved, and they love Jesus, and I love Jesus, and I need to resolve this. And so it's actually not right for me to come to the table. I'm going to go deal with this conflict this week, and then good news for me, we're going to take it again next Sunday, and then I'll come to the table and celebrate. Maybe in a beautiful act of the reconciling power of the gospel, it's someone else in this room, and you go, hey, before we go to the table, I'm going to like speed line it across the gathering space to tackle you before you take communion, because we've got conflict. Let's take it together. Or maybe you go off this week and you reconcile, and then next week you come to the table together and you take it, you get to celebrate, you get to pray, you get to worship the fact that God has reconciled you not just to himself, but also to one another. That's the beautiful turn outward. Second way that communion can turn us outward is through the practice of taking it together. What would it look like for you during our time of response to not be head down, kind of get through the line, take it, I hope nobody's looking, but actually to be eyes up. We encourage when it comes to worship too. People think it's kind of weird. Look around the room during worship, it's okay. Be encouraged by the faith of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Watch them as they take communion. Not like a weird, creepy way, like being an adult. But in like a genuine, like, oh man, you're taking communion, and you're doing this as a celebration that this is for you. Christ has died for you, and so I'm encouraged by your faith, and I'm spurred on to love Jesus more. Remember, for you, this looks like actually taking communion together. We're going to give you space to do that in just a minute, but it might look like you going, hey, I actually don't want to just take this and then rush back to my seat. I actually want to grab some members of my community group. I want to grab my spouse. I want to grab some roommates or some friends. And we're actually going to go to the table, and then we're going to go off to the side of the room because we've got tons of space on the side of the room. And we're just going to huddle up together. We're going to pray, and we're going to take the bread and the cup together. Just a small way of remembering I'm not alone in this. I actually get to take this as a part of God's people. The body and blood is not just the way I was reconciled to God, but it's the way they were reconciled to God, we were reconciled to one another. Does that make sense? Thank you. Here's what we're going to do. Just reflect on those for a moment. Four directions of communion that Paul is pointing us to in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Backward, 
look back to the cross for what he's done for us. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage feast to end all marriage feasts. We look inward. Examine our hearts, Lord. What are the ways that I'm not in alignment with you? Maybe I'm not a Christian. I need to repent, turn to Christ for the first time. Maybe I am trying to follow you, but there's some stuff I just need to own and confess. Not perfection, but alignment into desires for your kingdom. And then we look outward. Do I need to reconcile with anyone? Do I need to go hash it out, deal with it? Don't wait for next week. I know we do it on family vacation. Do it this week. Reconcile this week. Encourage. Maybe I need to grab some members of my community group. I need to grab a spouse, some friends, some Roommates, we're actually going to go to the table together. So we're just going to give space. We've got uh, a larger amount of songs post-sermon today just to give us some space. And so let me just help make sure you know what we're doing. Uh, it would probably be the wrong response. Again, I'll leave it up to you and the Holy Spirit. It would probably be the wrong response to go immediately to the table this week. Probably be a good idea to pause for at least a beat, a beat and go, all right, we think about the cross. Meditate on, ponder, remember. Be refreshed in my knowledge of what Jesus has done. Let me look ahead. Take some time to think about the fact that I know my life is broken in X, Y, and Z right now, but Christ is going to return, and that's part of his redemptive plan to make all things new. And so I'm going to put my hope in him, trust in him for that, let that fuel me with hope and celebration. I'm going to look inward and confess my sin to the Lord, what's going on that's contrary to his kingdom design. I'm ready to confess it to somebody else in the room. And then I'm going to go, okay, I need to reconcile, and then I'm going to take this with my family. I'm not going to go to the table alone. I'm going to force somebody else to go with me. When they're ready to, obviously. So what we're going to do. So band's going to come up in just a minute once I pray, and we're just going to create space for you to respond. To take communion. Uh, we've got just the individual cups this morning. They are gluten-free. I'm going to make sure I say that. You're welcome. The tables are going to be open. We're going to do three songs together, and so I'm just going to invite you. That's how long you have. If you realize at the end of those three, you're still not ready, that's okay. Next week, we'll come back around, and we'll take it for two weeks from now. We'll take it again. But do what you need to do with the Lord and with the Holy Spirit. If you want to sing for a little bit, then take it. If you want to grab some books in your community group, come take it together. Let me just encourage you um, to move around. The Sunday gathering is not just a thing where you stay in your seats and your aisle and your row and you just kind of participate a little bit as everybody on here does their gifts. This is a thing we do together. People of God together. This room has space, so let's do what we need to do together. Let's pray, baby. Come on up, Lord. We love you. We need you. We thank you for 1 Corinthians 11. We thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that we can learn from both good examples and bad examples in the scriptures. Now we can see your correction and your rebuke. Learn from it. Grow from it, Lord. And so I pray as we think about now, this set aside few moments in the grand scheme of life just to be a little more intentional about the act of the table. Lord, I pray that you would lead us by the power of your spirit. Lord, we want to have a proper reverence. That we don't want to postmodern, secularize, down our way out of that reality. That there's a warning for us on our very souls and bodies that we take this in properly. And yet we also don't want to be driven by fear when we're in. And so we hold that tension. We ask you to help us hold that tension that this is a bigger deal than we often make of. And yet we're invited to the table by the grace of Christ. That's our prayer over the next few moments as we look backward, forward, inward, outward, as we 
Examine our own hearts. Think about what you've done for us and what you will do for us. Think about our relationships and our community. Lord, would you give us confidence and courage and boldness to enter into this act by the blood of Jesus and celebrate together what you have done and what you will do. Lord, we give you the honor. We give you the praise. Thank you, Lord, for this ordinance, for this sacrament that you have given to us as your church that we get to do every single week to center our lives back on the grand story of so I pray you can do that now. We love you. We need you. Come Holy Spirit. Amen.